I'm Michael Lynch. I'm president of Strategic Energy and Economic Research. Thank you very much for joining the program here. First off, talk about what it is that you guys do as the uh, organization that you're in charge of there. Well, we do uh, energy economics and policy is the short thing. We, we do a lot of forecasting. We look at uh, where oil and gas prices are going uh, and how that affects different businesses in the energy sector. And also, uh, having done this for many years, uh, I, I feel like I'm in the position to comment on policy making, uh, good and bad, mostly uh, the, the bad, I'm afraid. So let's talk a little bit about the, well, first off, ACE. This is uh, in the books. It's currently in the process of happening, so to speak. Has, has any of your research or any of your um, policy overlooking, has, has that come into play at all in your offices, or have you guys looked elsewhere? Uh, a, a bit of both. Um, you know, we, we spend a lot of time uh, arguing about, uh, for example, that people do not have a good understanding of the nature of resources, um, that you get uh, the, what I refer to as a neo-Malthusian pessimism, uh, where so many people think uh, we're running out of oil and gas, uh, you know, we can't feed the population and so forth. Um, and so we try to argue um against that, but also uh, that free markets are generally much better way of uh, allocating resources. Uh, we argue in favor of things like uh, pipelines, for example, uh, but also exports, uh, you know, ending export restrictions on oil and gas, which has mostly been accomplished now in this country. How about natural gas? Do you guys do much in the terms of natural gas? A lot of flaring going on, uh, a lot of opportunity out there for natural gas? Yeah, I mean, the fact of the matter is that uh, natural gas has a lot of advantages. Uh, it's the cleanest fossil fuel. Uh, it's, it works very well in a lot of applications better than uh, most other types of energy, including some would say electricity, um, for example, for space heating. Uh, the, the problem is that uh, it is relatively expensive to transport, um, especially overseas. And uh, the market internationally tends to be somewhat restricted by uh, monopolies and pra past practices so that uh, on a global level, natural gas is used a lot less than it should be. Um, and I think the, the U.S. Uh, LNG export business is, is uh, really making a big difference in that sector. One of the things that we've talked about in this program, pontificated, if you will, and we're we're relatively a non-political program we'll talk about policy but we stay out of most of the political banter and, and debates but one of the things that we have raised the question of is what would world look like if we shifted subsidies away from say solar and wind who've had a pretty good uh, run of subsidies for 40 years but let's say we shifted those to natural gas and I my belief is there's a lot of innovation out there in the natural gas world that if energy companies were able to tap into some additional funds because at least up in my neck of the woods up in the Bakken they're taxed very heavily the oil companies are they uh, make sure that the little league teams have baseball uniforms and the churches have bake sales and sometimes they just don't have enough money left over for research and development and this would allow some 
natural gas providers that are crazy enough to sleep on these well sites and check monitors every day and just it would it would create a whole different little sub economy type of a thing in my mind um what do you make of something like like that you know or if you shifted some subsidies because i believe the flaring issue could be solved in five years and who knows what we'd come out of it maybe just some new super plastic that uh you can build a house with i don't know i'm just (laughs) (laughs) as a matter of fact i I 20 minutes ago, literally, uh, a friend uh, on Twitter commented on uh, the environmental damage from the mining of sand to make concrete, and I commented, you know, maybe we need more plastic and less concrete. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, it, it, unfortunately, so much of policymaking and thinking is, is based on cliches and, and uh, beliefs that are not well-founded. Um, a lot more natural gas should be used in places uh, around the world where people use, uh, you know, quote unquote biomass, which is to say, you know, um, <clears throat> we'll say cow poop, uh, to be polite for your listeners. Um, uh, and and also, I mean, there's still huge amounts of coal, and yet people run around saying, "Oh, if only we didn't use natural gas in Berkeley, California, the world would be saved." And that's just that's just utter nonsense. And you know, I, it, that's not political. That's uh, I think. Um, but um, yeah, uh, the problem is, uh, how do you use natural gas in places like the Bakken, uh, where there's not ready uh, consumers? Um, but you have a superabundance of supply, and certainly there's a lot of things you can do with hydrocarbons generally, and, and methane uh, in particular, um, that we haven't really exploited as much as we have. As, as you say, you know, the people people uh, in the environmental community like to talk about the huge subsidies for fossil fuels, and usually what they mean is that gasoline in Iran is three cents a gallon, uh, not that uh, oil and gas in the U.S. is subsidized particularly. Um, so the uh, you know the amount of money going into building uh, solar panels, which are very uh, poor technology, just you know seriously inadequate in most uses, uh, versus natural gas, which is heavily taxed and reduces. Uh, pollution uh it's just, it's just kind of shocking and and it, it does give a sense of uh how much the public can uh we'll say be led astray well our thoughts are that you know the, the bench benchmarks and the milestones those were put out by the solar and wind companies over the last 40 years so this is this is the part that i, I think you know a real adult conversation needs to be had within the policymakers that you know after 40 years and we've been very upfront on this program that solar promised us affordable energy for the last 40 years, and then they really promised it 20 years ago. And they still are not, in all honesty, the most affordable thing that solar is now provided is probably a cell phone charger type technology when you go camping. And I'm being serious. That's about the most affordable thing that's probably efficient, correct? Yes, and, and, you know, if, if you're in an isolated village in uh, Africa or South America and, uh, you know, sure. you don't have electric appliances, but you want to charge your cell phone, yeah, that, that's great because yeah. you don't care. You know, you can charge the battery and walk away, uh, whereas if you tell somebody, okay, you can cook your turkey for 40 minutes and then come back in two hours and cook it another 40 minutes, you know, no, no, no consumer wants that. No, no, um, and, and then even in, in wind now, we're, we're on record saying that, 
a hundred years ago, the farmers were more efficient with wind energy than we are today. The way the farmers, they, they extracted water out of the earth and the way that they powered their pole barn and their barn by using a windmill, that is much more efficient than we have ever, we, we are today with wind energy. And, uh, you know, for, for as far as risk and reward and that sort of thing. Um, talk to me a little bit about that, uh, how, the, you know, they've had 40 years to really come up with something that was supposed to be affordable. What happened? Well, I'll tell you. Okay, so um, I have a chapter in my book, uh, The Peak Oil Scare, uh, in which I talk about uh, how a lot of these uh, technologies get promoted uh, and I guess you could say over-promoted. And people who like a technology, they don't think critically about it. Um, and you can you can easily find, especially in the internet era, you can find all kinds of references to research about new wonderful technologies. And the problem is that a lot of things can be done in the laboratory, uh, and they just don't work out in the real world. Um, you know, I was at MIT for many years, and I knew all kinds of professors who had all kinds of great ideas, and the vast majority of them never paid out. Um, you can see this. Uh, in electric vehicle batteries, uh, you know, people have been talking about the great advances for 20 years, and, and they're still not very good. I mean, they're better, but they're nowhere near good enough. Um, and the problem is that, you know, you can always find somebody, an inventor, who will tell you, this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. And if you say, what does it cost? And I mean, I've literally seen MIT professors ask that question, and they just stare blankly and go, well, or, um, you know, but it works great. Um, you know, you, you can make uh, gasoline out of urine, um, and I'm sure Budweiser would like to uh, provide some subsidies for that, um, but, you know, it, it costs a heck of a lot of money, and you can just pump the stuff out of the ground. So uh, the problem is that a, a lot of policy making gets uh, done by people who don't really know what they're doing and who just have very fuzzy you know, green pie in the sky ideas. And uh, they, especially, I hate to say this, the younger folks, you know, I constantly run into them and I say, yeah, I heard about that 30 years ago and I'm still waiting. Um, so for example, uh, 25, 30 years ago, some people at MIT said, you know, we, we have a paint, you can spray it on your house and the silicon cells will line up and you'll get electric power. Now, you know, it's not ready to be marketed or commercialized yet, but, but it, it's technically feasible. Well, that was 30 years ago and people are still working on that and it's not even close yet. So uh, people need to think a little more critically when they, when they read things on the internet. Or they need to follow it a little more closely and get burned by the terawatt of solar storage promise and, and things like that. I mean, honestly, you feel stupid after the fifth, sixth, seventh time. I mean, because they keep coming yeah. back and they say they're going to get there and then you get excited and then it, you know, it just, it's not there. And, you know, God bless them for trying and keeping it up. But at some point, you, you know, you have to say, okay, when's enough enough? Um, I did want to ask you about the perception of the modern day environmentalist, because it's really become an influence on what's going on in the uh, oil and gas industry. I mean, look at what happened at Colorado, BLM uh, yeah. in Wyoming. And like I've mentioned, we have two presidential candidates, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, 
actively talking about banning the industry in their platform. So it's part of the, you know, at least one side of the political aisles, public, you know, conversation, which is to me a little bit concerning because when I grew up, the, the light switch was not political. Um, <laughs> it, it, you know, and this is, I've, I've seen the evolution now. We've followed this for about five years on our program, the, the rise of the environmentalist to where we've now this last year have changed it to where we, we flat out call it by its literal term, the cult of environmentalism. And there's so much blind faith that's being followed and so much just herd mentality that's going on. Cult really does seem to be the appropriate term. And when you look at what's happened with the modern day environmentalism, there's some real interesting irony here. And we're on record saying this, and I'd love to get your uh, opinion or, or your, your reaction to this, is that today's environmentalist has become a texting, trolling, Keurig drinking, um, carbon waste zone, whereas the <laughs> oil and gas industry is now the new leader in the environmental movement to save the planet. They're the ones that are doing the investment in innovation and some of the things they've done with reclamation. You can kind of, you know, say that they're like a Boy Scout. They leave the place better than when they got there. And there's a lot of truth behind that because, you know, I mean, I don't know if you're aware of the cell phone thing, but cell phones really are the number one polluter on the planet. So if, if environmentalists are spending most of their time just texting and trolling, they're causing more problem than they are. You know, I mean, so anyway, your thought on that. No, I, I mean, I, I take I take your point, and um, th- there's a couple of uh, examples uh, where uh, y- you rarely, if ever, hear environmentalists criticize Germany. Germany has spent a huge amount on wind and solar, and their carbon emissions are higher than ever because they shut in nuclear power plants at the Fukushima, uh, even though Germany has probably not had a tsunami in, you know, 300 million years. Um, and they're, they're burning lignite, which is pretty much the dirtiest thing, the dirtiest fossil fuel. I mean, I guess, uh, you know, dung is dirtier uh, in a lot of ways. And, and you know, so, uh, and you compare that with the U.S., where our carbon emissions have gone down, especially because of uh, cheap natural gas. Um, and yet, no environmentalist would praise America uh, for addressing climate change or, or greenhouse gas emissions. Um, it is... Um, there are environmentalists, some who are basically, you know, scientists who are trying to look at numbers and think about things. And some of them will come around and say, you know, if we use nuclear power instead of coal, that's good. And some will say, you know, genetically modified organisms is a, is a more efficient way of growing food, and that's good. Uh, and some of them will say, you know, natural gas is, is a, better in a lot of places than uh, just about anything else. Um, I mean, I appreciate the Environmental Defense Fund going out and saying, you know, wh- where's the methane leakage? Okay, it's gee, it's not the wells, it's it's the pipes, and we can fix that. Um, that's that's rational. But then you get, you know, the Sierra Club or somebody saying, you know, we have to stop using fossil fuels in eight years. Um, and I always say, you know, if you don't like, I don't know how old you are. In the, in the '60s, they said if you, if you don't like cops, next time you mug, call a hippie. And I always say, if you don't like fossil fuels, next time you break a leg, bike to the ER. I've never heard that. If you don't like, if you get mugged, you don't like cops, call a hippie. Right. 
<laughs> that that was uh, yeah. See, I'm dating myself on that. That was uh, the '60s. Oh, that's hey. To me, that transcends time. That's that's gold anytime in my book. So, okay. Uh, what do you make about coal? Uh, coal seems to keep losing ground. It, it's made some amazing uh, innovations over the last ten years, fifteen years. I mean. I'm from North Dakota, where we've got, I think, the cleanest air in the nation, and 90, 70 to 90 percent of our state's powered by coal. Mm-hmm. Well, um, <clears throat> so I, I knew people who were working on, on Chinese energy, and um, until about 20 years ago in China, people burned lump coal in their houses, um, and that was a cause of huge pollution. And they sort of said, you know, if you wash the coal, you reduce the pollution substantially, uh, and if you burn it in big plants instead of little, you know, open stoves and kitchens, uh, that makes a big difference. Um, one of my colleagues uh, at, at, at a company that makes power plants actually told me that um, a modern Chinese coal plant, a new one, is cleaner than uh, the average American plant, which tend to be a lot older. Um, you you can definitely clean up coal a lot. You can't fix CO2 without doing some kind of extraction and, and sequestration, which, you know, that's a whole nother question. And, and that's an area where I think uh, the technology is moving forward. Um, but, you know, it, it's hard to go out to people uh, who are impoverished in India, for example, and tell them, uh, as Enron tried to do, uh, you, you need really expensive clean power. Um, that just That's just not going to work. Um, and it, I think in the short run, uh, I'd like to see, for example, a lot more gas pipelines to Asia uh, to displace all that coal. Um, but I, I do think uh, that, you know, the future is not coal any more than it is. You know, nobody burns, very few people burn wood for power, although we still have a, a big timber industry. Um, and I have, have a cousin who actually makes building materials out of coal, uh, which is um, kind of unusual, but he's an unusual guy. Well, it wouldn't surprise me if they found another use for it. He uh, he turns it into something he calls sea foam, which it it's literally looks and feels like styrofoam, but it's black and it's highly heat resistant. And actually, the Navy uses it, uh, uh, and they use it for uh, rocket uh, co- uh, engine uh, cones too, because it's so heat resistant uh, and very lightweight. Um, I don't know the economics, but uh, he's making a lot of money off it. That's the one thing I absolutely uh, love about the energy industry. That's what I fell in love with and started covering it was because it's it's kind of like the last essence of capitalism, the last bastion for capitalism. It just seems like the energy industry still, you know, you can be a roughneck one week and then the next week you're an inventor and then all of a sudden, you know, you got a great contract with Marathon a couple weeks later because you got a vibrating tube that saved them money. I mean, I just... Yeah, yeah. Well, it's you know, it's it's a question. This is this is where I, I run into a lot of problems with people saying, "Well, you know, we'll tell the car companies to make more efficient cars," and I say, "You know, you have to tell the consumers that they want that they should. That you have to get the consumers to want more efficient cars. You can't legislate consumer desires. People need energy, uh, and entrepreneurs go out and try to satisfy that need." At, whereas the government tries to sit down and figure out, well, you know, what exactly should we do instead of energy or, you know, how should the government provide it? And 
Um, again, if you, I hate to date myself, but uh, I still have documents from the Carter administration where they talked about how we're running out of natural gas and, you know, we should only burn coal instead of gas for power, things like that. And, and it was all based on a few really bad uh, economic studies. Um, and uh, frankly, they didn't listen to the experts. They listened to the people they thought were the experts uh, who all turned out to be uh, horribly wrong. What do you make about the Green New Deal? That, uh, <laughs> to me, it seems like it's, uh, you know, words like um, impossible or not impossible, but, uh, well, extremely difficult. I mean, radical, and it would, it would be a very... Uh, accurate word radical would be yeah i mean it's it's partly it's done by committee so then they they let everybody throw in you know oh and we want you know more jobs and more social justice and better health care and that and it, you know it's kind of like when you you know you go to a, a condo sales pitch and they go oh yeah and do you have cancer well no problem buy this condo it'll cure your cancer <laughs> um, you know and uh they it's it's very aspirational um, and um, you, you know very uh, imaginative, but it's it's there's no effort to be realistic, um, and they they always say oh well we'll make lots of jobs. It's like well no you're not going to create jobs. You're going to take jobs. You're going to tax people and destroy jobs and then create new jobs that you think and less jobs that you happen to approve of uh, ideologically. Um, because technically, you know, in, in back in the, in the Depression, they said, oh, you know, you're, you're creating jobs, but they're just digging ditches. And I said, you know, the modern equivalent of that is, you know, to dig a ditch from the mountains down to the shore and, and let water run down and get hydro and pretend that, oh, look, we created a lot of jobs uh, while you're taxing other jobs out of existence. Um, you know, the, the, the whole idea of, A, we can sort of have zero percent you know, fossil fuel consumption or emissions or whatever, you know, you hear this all the time, oh, we're going to end homelessness, even though we've always had homelessness throughout human history, somehow we're going to end it, or poverty or hunger. No, you want to, you want to improve the situation, but you can't, you can't like wave a magic wand and say, we're going to get rid of all this, we're going to have, uh, you know, completely carbon neutral energy, uh, especially when you consider that uh, windmills and solar panels require a huge amount of energy uh, to create. About three years ago, uh, I was at a conference, and they showed a big screen up on the projection screen, I guess. And it had to do with uh, mining. The mining industry was the only industry that added jobs over the past decade. Uh, when you looked at all the different, you know, technology sector, medical, all these different sectors, the mining industry after 10 years had, was the only one that had a net gain. And then they broke it down even a step further and said it was pr basically because of oil and gas, because, you know, the silver industry wasn't quite growing in the U.S. and, and the, um, you know, the other mining industries, so to speak. So it was just it was U.S. that was doing all this or I'm sorry, oil and gas that was doing all this. It seems kind of odd that they're trying to put the one industry that has created jobs, a net gain of jobs for the past 10 years, they're trying to put it out of business in 10 years. <laughs> it's, it, you know, it's, it's politically incorrect to say, uh, oh, the, the Jews do this, the Irish do this, uh, but it, you can say, oh, the banks do this, or the oil companies do this, and it's considered okay. 
Um, it's it's kind of astonishing. I, I was debating with a guy uh, who's an ethanol supporter, and he said, "Well, you know, uh, the oil companies support are unpatriotic because they supported." Uh, the Nazis in World War II, and I said, well, okay, so the CEO of Shell in the 30s was a Nazi supporter, but, you know, do you not drive cars because Volkswagen, you know, was created by the Nazis? I mean, that's that's ridiculous. Um, but people, people, I think, have switched their prejudices in part from racial and ethnic groups to uh, types of organizations and, and also chemicals where, you know, you sort of go, oh, this chemical, here we have a seed with, it was uh, modified in a laboratory as opposed to by, you know, an Aztec farmer a thousand years ago. So, it, 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 you know, if it's done in a laboratory or if it's done for profit, it's no good. Whereas if it's done, uh, you know, by an indigenous person, it's somehow special. Um, this, you know, you'd like to think that humans had gotten smarter over the years, but sometimes I, I have my doubts. Well, it's interesting about how the energy industry really has changed. Like I said, back when I was in junior high, the energy industry really wasn't political. Gas prices people would complain about. But for the most part, you know, I mean, there was a, a, a BP spill up in the up in the Alaska area. Um, or Exxon was up there, and then BP was down in the Gulf. Basically, I've had like two major ones in my lifetime. Um, and those weren't even really political it was just like a it was like a tragedy it was like a you know it's it just like a natural disaster kind of the way it was really really approached or treated uh the political I, stuff came afterwards but go ahead sorry yeah you know it's sort of the the target of the day um and i i can remember in the 70s an anti-nuclear activist and i sort of said you know uh what's the next issue after after you get bored with nuclear power and, and she's like oh no we'll never be bored and you know um there hasn't been a march against a nuclear power plant in this country in i don't know 25 years or something um so i you know it yeah it is oil but you know may, maybe the next thing will be you know the pharmaceutical companies uh or the power companies or the banks uh you know w will be the next big target um but there's always sort of an activist community i think that that uh goes out and looks for targets and and you know there's a lot of times there's some fire uh emits all the smoke um but what you find is uh the difference between people who say you know we need to tweak this as opposed to the people who say we need to burn it down um and in the great depression the problem was instead of people saying we need better banking regulation you had people uh saying oh, capitalism doesn't work, let's go for communism, or let's go for fascism. Um, and, and that turned out to be you know, just completely wrong, in my opinion. Um, and I think you see a lot of that now today with some of the, the politicians who sort of say, no, you can't, you can't fix the system, it needs to be completely uh, you know, uh, renovated or, or destroyed. Um, and, you know, I look at it and I go, well, you know, no, you're just talking about tweaking this here and there, and, and that, that will take care of 80% of the problems. Um, but, uh, again, you get into kind of human nature, which is uh, I'd rather have a chant than a policy proposal. Oh, I, I see where you're, you're coming from, and I, I'd agree and go a little step further by saying, you know, everyone's an activist now because they have a cell phone, and that cell phone has a, you know, a mobile media company within it. You know, they used to say, you know, everyone's got uh, their 15 
minutes of fame, but really now you got your 15 followers. So uh, <laughs> going from there, you know, it's interesting because the, the activists have always been there and now they can be more impulsive and they've got, you know, more ability to uh, have an outlet, I guess. And, and you know this, that there's more activism now, but that doesn't mean it, it, it's getting any bigger because a lot of it goes by the wayside. Nobody sees it. You know, there's there's just there's more noise, so to speak. But here's the thing that I'm I, I've been following and, and we've had a few discussions on this program about it uh, and had to do with the, the politicizing of energy to where. When you look at what the energy companies have done, and you know, rightfully so, during its time, they invested a lot of money into government relations. They kind of did away with traditional public relations and marketing, went kind of with a, on a local level, and then government affairs. And then over the last decade, really, the the blue and red um, polarization happened very quickly. And to where energy all of a sudden got lumped in with gun control and right to life issue. It just became kind of a black and white, red and blue type of a thing. And oil and gas got thrown into the, the, the one side of the aisle, you know. And right. so to me, I, I look at this is a really a golden time and a really a very paradigm shifting time. You know, we've had a number of CEOs talk about the paradigm shift on this program, you know, with hydraulic uh, fracturing and, and drilling. And then you take a look at what big data has done to HR departments and monitoring and censoring. Now it's time to maybe paradigm shift the way they're doing PR and public relations because the, the, they've been very reactive over the last 10 years and they don't need to be now. I mean, we talked earlier about the modern day contemporary environment environmentalist has really changed and become more of a polluter than a solution, you know, more pollution than solution. There we go. There's your rhyme. More pollution than solution. Um, what do you make of that as far as the, you know, the energy companies maybe should look at how they're engaging with the public and how they're they're doing their public relations? Because in my opinion, it seems like they've really now the politicians have become their PR spokespeople. Um, there's some truth to that. I mean, one thing that bothers me is uh, a CEO is not a PR person. Um, a CEO is supposed to manage a company, but I, I, I saw um, uh, some video where somebody in Congress was asking the CEO of Exxon, well, why are oil prices high? And he was trying to think of a polite way to say, you know, that's, that's not in my job description. Um, it, it, there is, the problem is that uh, public relations becomes political with, within companies. Um, and you can get all kinds of problems there. We had a case, I knew a professor who uh, in the 70s was very critical of Saudi Arabia, um, and Mobile was trying to do research, uh, trying to invest in Saudi Arabia, so they ordered people not to visit MIT uh, because they, you know, they just didn't approve of this professor. Um, so that can be a problem, it, but, and that's one reason it's the old, you know, leave it to the professionals. You should have a good PR department. Uh, you should focus a lot, I think, on education, um, and because there's there's just so much misunderstanding. I, you know, I've, I've in discussing fracking online occasionally, I get people and they'll say just the wildest things, and you, you know, you sort of want to go, well, you know, if you don't like it when Donald Trump says something that you think is wrong, why would you listen to say David Letterman when he says the Delaware River Valley has been destroyed by fracking, which he literally said. 
mm-hmm. you know, or there's, uh, I, I have it here somewhere, uh, an ad from uh, a full page ad in the New York Times by Yoko Ono saying, uh, Mr. Obama, what are you, how are you going to tell your children that the grandchildren will not have a planet to live on because of fracking? And it, it's like, you know, fracking, um, it, it's not like making cupcakes, but it's not that different from, all, you know, the rest of American industry. You, you know, yeah, there's chemicals and there's workers and, you know, that's, that's life. And you don't want people dumping the chemicals in the stream, but we have regulations for that and people are not doing that. Um, but it's, it, it gets so, I think you would say, a religious, cultish, um, where it's sort of, you know, X is good and Y is bad, uh, and nothing else matters. And it, it, the industry, I think, needs to simply try to parse things. Um, it is hard to have a conference and have somebody get up for 10 minutes and say, oil is evil, and somebody else get up and say, oil is good. Um, but... I've been engaged, for example, in the peak oil debate where I was able to, you know, put up graphs and talk about about real numbers with people um, and at least convince some of them. You know, the true believers are always going to be true believers. But there, I think there are a lot of people out in the middle that you can you can uh, talk to. I think one of the things that that I've noticed is the energy industry is very technical and it becomes very much facts and very science-based, and, and the activists have really seen a lot of progress hitting the emotional triggers. Yes. And that's the one thing I, I think that the energy industry, I think, needs to kind of reinvent themselves as far as the, that paradigm shift I'm talking about, you know, to where um, that might be a different way to approach it because um, it, it's almost like they've, and I, I've seen it firsthand and I have been critical with, with the industry on this over the past month. I, I spoke recently at a couple conferences and, and I said, you know, we, me included with, with, you know, I have a program called the crude life. I mean, we're very oil and gas energy centric. And at the same time, you know, we have to be very aware of what's going on because over the last 10 years, the industry's made more money and spent more money than any other 10-year period in their history. They had $100 oil. I mean, just huge dollars. And at the end of 10 years, you just got banned in Colorado, and Wyoming's BLM is banning you, and Oregon is trying to do the same ban there, and two presidential candidates are talking about banning the industry, and then you got the new Green Deal. So it's, it's a tough conversation to have, but it needs to be had. And, uh, you know, because otherwise, who knows what's going to happen? The, the, the emotional herd mentality will just keep going. Yeah, I, when I was writing about the Dakota Pipeline, one of the things I pointed out was that, uh, you know, there, there's lots of energy installations in North Dakota, North and South Dakota. Uh, this is so the, the idea that, you know, one more pipeline or in Massachusetts, you know, we have 5,000 miles of natural gas pipelines and people talk about how a hundred mile extension would, would destroy the state. Um, and, but you get down and you try to, you know, talk to people about facts and context. And I think, again, you can reach the reasonable middle, um, and you can discredit, uh, the unreasonable, uh, extremes, I think, uh, by pointing out, just you know, pointing to reality and, and trying to be uh, reasonable and rational, and, and not uh, not just throwing bricks. True story. When the Dakota Access Pipeline happened, I was interviewed by the BBC 
uh, because of the coverage we did on it. We were we were one of the few that was non-political, and you know we had we had on uh, some people from the protest and everything. And I went out there to meet with some environmentalists uh, to you know give their side of it. True story. They they served me a Keurig coffee. That's why when I say the texting, <laughs> trolling, Keurig coffee drinking, that's where that comes from. I right. I, I ended the interview. I left. I said no. Well, uh, but, I, I I used to uh, hold on. You're you're fading out. Let me uh, switch phones. Here. Oh, sorry. Yeah, no. I I ended the interview because it was um it, it was it was hypocritical for them to be protesting a major environmental issue and then serve me a Keurig coffee cup, which is you know anyway, well. So. In one of my Forbes pieces, I had a picture of the protest site where you could see acres and acres of pickups and SUVs and, uh, you know, RVs and stuff. And, it, and it's like, I'm, I kind of doubt they're all, uh, you know, fueled with uh, ethanol grown in their backyard. Well, not only that, but then the trash that was left behind, <laughs> a lot of people focus on the fact that they'd left trash behind. No, it's the type of trash that was left behind. That's the part that is so hilarious to me. And and I don't mean yeah. hilarious in a very positive way, just that the texting, the trolling. I mean, you can throw in there the potato chip eating, the ding dong <laughs> eating. I mean, all most of I mean, they weren't growing, you know, their own vegetables out there. Not that I mean they spent enough time they could have, but it right. was but it was it was all, you know, plastic covered disposable stuff for the most part that was left behind. And so um, anyway, so uh, we, we, get, uh, get, uh, get one yeah, go ahead. Anecdote: We we have a local uh, natural foods uh, store, and in the summertime they'll have displays, and they'll say, you know, like these carrots were delivered by bicycle from a nearby farm, and then maybe thirty feet away there'll be a stack of mineral water that was delivered from Italy. So you know, it's all about balance, right? The offset, yeah, the, yeah. The, the biker offsets the the ship and the rail and the <laughs> and everything else, right? That's that's yeah. great. That's well. Um, talk to me about uh, what's next for you guys as far as make sure you give yourself a plug. What you guys are working on? Um, I don't know. I mean, do you, how, how are you guys? You're MIT, right? Uh, I used to be. I'm, used to I'm be. Now okay. a consultant, and I, I work actually. I'm also a, a fellow with the Energy Policy Research Foundation in Washington, which focuses uh, on on petroleum issues, especially. Okay. You know, we're trying to convince the Mexican government uh, to be a little more free market. Uh, I've been uh, working on uh, the LNG business and and sort of you know dealing with uh, the risks that the LNG exporters face and and how to cope with them. Um, and, and also, uh, there are a certain uh, a segment of the analyst community who are telling us that uh, shale is, is on the verge of collapse and probably should be, that they're spending too much, that decline rates are too high and so forth. And, and I, I've been going into the numbers and sort of saying uh, a lot of that is exaggerated. Uh, you know, it's like, yes, a company had tried an experiment and it didn't work, work well. Uh, and, you know, so they'll try something else. But that's not the same as saying uh, the industry can't cope with, uh, you know, low recovery rates or anything. Boy, I tell you, we'd love to have you back on the program to talk about that because we've we've been following that. Um, for about five years now, the Mexican LNG market. And if that could just get opened up in a way that the potential is there, it would it would just be... And that's one of those, getting back to the natural gas subsidies things, there's another thing there that would, that would just help that market co- considerably. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, anyway, so, well, uh, Mike Lynch with 
is this strategic energy and economic research. Is that right? Yes. Okay, that's great. Right. And um, so you you're, you're a consultant. So yeah, you'll take on customers. So uh, how can people get in <laughs> touch with you? I mean, you know, you always get one thing we like to let people do is plug their business or plug their way to get some some business and that sort of stuff. You know, appreciate you coming on and sharing your mind. You know. No, sure. It's been fun, Jason.